The book of Hebrews so far has laid out some incredible truths trying to illuminate to you and to me how great and unique Jesus Christ truly is. And the book of Hebrews has done that in a lot of really unique and interesting ways. We've mentioned this before, but the book of Hebrews is the most Old Testament of all the New Testament books. It's gone through those stories and images and structures of the Old Testament to talk about Jesus and how great He is. Jesus is not just another religious leader. He's not even one of the greatest of the religious leaders. He's not just a wonderful moral prophet. He's greater than all of that. The theme of the center of this book has been Jesus is greater than, even greater than the angels and Moses and the law and Abraham and the temple and the priesthood. As great as all of that is, Jesus is even greater. So we've gone to great lengths to talk about the uniqueness and glory of Jesus Christ. In our passage of Scripture today, we have a little bit of a transition as we make our way into the last couple of chapters of this book. But as we make this transition, we are reminded of this incredible truth, guys, that we have access to God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, those of us who have been Christians for a long time, that may sound like you know, it's just old fare. We know this is true. We pray all the time. We read our Bibles. But it's good for us to come in contact with, again, this incredible truth that we, have, we actually have access to the Creator of all things, the Savior of our souls, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What we sing, guys, someday will come true. The veil is torn. The doors will fling wide. And we will see glory as we rush inside. Isn't that beautiful? This is the gospel story. Guys, because of our sin, there is this unbridgeable gap between us and a holy God. But because of the love and the power of God, He was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself. Because of Jesus Christ, we have access to the Creator. It's a relationship that we need, and it's a relationship that we cannot secure under our own strength. So God is in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. In our passage of Scripture today, it's roughly broken into three sections. Here are the kinds of things that we're going to read about today. The first is what we're calling privileges and responsibilities. We've been given these amazing things in Christ, access to God, the forgiveness of our sins. So we're given these amazing privileges, but we're also commanded to act in certain ways as followers of Jesus Christ. Privileges and then responsibilities as followers of Jesus Christ. And all too often what ends up happening inside of our hearts and minds and lives is that we love taking advantage of the privileges and we love to ignore the responsibilities. So the writer of Hebrews reminds us of some of these things. Our second section we're going to talk about being deliberate. It's an interesting piece of vocabulary the writer uses. In our broken nature, we are, as the writer says, deliberate about our sin. We're persistent in our sin. And what we need to do is become aware of that and we become deliberate about righteousness, right living before God, and right belief in God as well. How we live as followers of Jesus Christ really matters. What we believe about who God is really and truly matters. What does it mean to be deliberate as a follower of Jesus Christ? 
Then our third section, we're just calling it Stay Close and Hang On. When these first readers of the book of Hebrews became Christians, it turns out that this church suffered persecution, probably severe and significant persecution. The writer acknowledges that. The writer knows that. The writer may have even been there with them through that period of persecution. So he writes them here in chapter 10 to say, hang on. Now is not the time to let go of your faith. So we come again to this theme throughout Hebrews that Christians learn to endure, to hang on to our confidence in Jesus Christ, and to live in this life as if we are His children and belong to His kingdom instead of belonging to a different kingdom altogether. And right at the very end of this chapter, we are reminded in beautiful fashion that we live today as if we are headed toward our eternal goal, life eternal with Jesus Christ. Let's begin reading in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. The passage goes like this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love in good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The basic structure of those verses that we read is this. Because we know these incredible things are true, let us live in a certain way. If this is true, then this is how we should be living. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, we have this confidence to approach God. And the writer reminds us that that only happens through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, not through my merit, not through my capacity, not through our ability or merit, but only through the merit, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, what we read here in Hebrews chapter 10 was foreshadowed for us in Hebrews chapter 4. These two little sections of Scripture act as kind of bookends for sort of the core of the book So let's remind ourselves of what was read to us in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. The writer says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Here's this language that sounds familiar now. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He lived this life in this flesh, but sinlessly. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. These things that are given to us by Jesus Christ. And then so much of what happens between chapter 4 and then 
chapter 10 is, is discussion about that Old Testament context and how the sacrifices in the temple and the priests and the high priest and the holy priest and how all of that worked. You see, the Old Testament system is this constant reminder of this gap that exists between me, a broken and sinful human being, and God, this holy and pure and righteous being. That gap exists So I have to go to the temple and offer my sacrifice. But then I'm going to fail again. We're going to fail again. So we take those sacrifices back to the temple. And Hebrews has told us the priests stand daily because the people offer sacrifices over and over. It's this reminder of this gap that exists between us. And yet this understanding is critical for us. We must understand it in order for us to grasp how profound the gift is that we are given in Jesus Christ. What exactly it is to have this privilege of actual access to God that the Old Testament system had told us you don't really have, you don't really have, you don't really have. But now the veil's been torn, it says, that is, through the flesh of Jesus Christ. And now there's access to God Himself. We come to this throne of grace now. We confidently approach the throne of grace in Jesus Christ. This throne of grace, the presence of God, this is where we meet the power and the love of God poured out upon His children. This is where we come to lay our needs before a God whose power and grace overwhelms all of our needs. And this is where we come not to tell God what He is supposed to do, but to receive from God what only He can give. We receive grace to help in our time of need. Look at it like this. When a subject in a kingdom approaches the seat of power, the king or the queen. The subject comes not to give them what they have, but to receive whatever they are able to give. Power gives what it can to those in need. That's the image. And what God's power grants is life, it's grace, it's forgiveness, it's healing, it's salvation. Guys, the gifts that God gives are an outpouring of what is in His character and in His power. We actually have a sense of how this works inside of our own lives. If you can imagine the people in your lives, in your life that you love, your friends, your kids, your parents, your spouse, your family, there are these seasons in life where what you want to be able to do is take what you have and give it to them. You want to give as much as you possibly can to them. They struggle, they stumble, they fall, they're failing, something's going wrong. You want to be able to take what you have and give it to them out of love. But oftentimes, what that person that we love is is going through outstrips my power to give. Does that make sense? They go through something that maybe I can help with, walk alongside with them, but I don't have the resources or the power to give them everything they need. God gives out of His abundant and limitless power to those who approach the throne of grace. God's power can give what only God's power can give. And when we hunt 
for salvation and meaning and satisfaction and purpose in this life anywhere but God, we're drawing from really shallow pools. But God gives grace, life, salvation, righteousness, holiness. It is an outpouring of His character and power. How important this privilege is that we have access to the throne of grace. Listen to the psalmist talk about how, this incredi- how incredible this is to him. Psalm 27 verse 4, we read this this morning. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Here's what I want. Here's what I really want. Just be in the presence of God. What is it like to open my eyes and gaze on the beauty of God? To be able to sit in His presence and inquire about who He is, how magnificent and glorious and transcendent and perfect and great this God is. I just want to sit and inquire about my God. Is that desire within us? Do we understand the privilege that we have? Do we actually want to take advantage of this privilege? The psalmist puts it like this in Psalm 1611. You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. At His right hand, in His presence is where we find those things. These incredible privileges that we have been given as followers of Jesus Christ because of what Christ has done for us. As the writer walks through this section, they overlap now with these responsibilities. We've been given this, and now we're asked, we're commanded to live in a certain way because these things are true. As you look at it, verses 22, 23, and 24, all begin with the phrase, so let us, so let us, so let us. The first is, so let us draw near. We have this full assurance. I love the way he puts it. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We have this full assurance we are being cleaned, it says, as we talked about in chapter 9, from the inside out. This is the promise of life with Christ. If we are children of God, God is at work within us. As Hebrews has said, the blood of bulls and goats, no matter how much you pour that blood out, that cannot cleanse what's going on on the inside. But Jesus can. So we have our consciences cleaned. So in this salvation with Christ, we're washed from the inside out. And as the writer puts it in the act of baptism, we symbolize that cleansing. Baptism isn't what saves us. We we don't do that in order to be saved, but we do that as an ordinance of the church. We do that following the command of Christ to symbolize are washing in Christ. It's, that's, that's why we go all the way underwater. And I, I always tell the teens, I've asked your parents how long I should hold you there before I bring you back up. We go underwater, and we come back up, and we're washed from head to toe. That's the imagery. We go underwater, and it's a symbol of us partaking in the death of Christ, and we come back up, and we partake in the brand-new life of our resurrected Lord and Savior. That's what we do. 
So we have our bodies washed with this kind of water, symbolizing what Christ has done. It's beautiful stuff. He says, then let us hold fast. In verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. Hang on to your confession and your hope. This is important stuff. Our confession, what we believe about Christ, our confession is that Jesus is God in flesh, the Savior of our souls. Don't let that one go, he says. Hold fast to that confession. What we actually believe about Jesus matters. There are a lot of pressures in this world trying to get us to move Jesus from the unique Savior of all of humanity into the category of really, really nice guy. There are a lot of pressures like that. And the writer of Hebrews says, hang on to what is true about Jesus, your confession of faith. You see, our hope in the end is not in how good we are at holding fast, but in who Jesus is. That's where our hope is placed. So let's not let go of our confession of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Guys, I think it's important to note because sometimes I know that this bothers us as we walk through life as followers of Jesus. Our salvation is a matter of assurance. This is the language that he uses. It's a matter of assurance. It's a matter of confidence. It is a matter of, and here's a better way of putting it, it's a matter of knowledge, not of feeling. Sometimes I feel like I'm in right relationship with God, and that's magnificent. Sometimes I don't feel saved. So if my salvation rests on my feelings, I am in a lot of trouble. I might even be in trouble this morning, <laughs> right? But I know it's true. And it's based on that truth, not how I feel about that truth. Two plus two is four no matter how you feel about it. The earth is the third planet from the sun no matter how you feel about it. It's just true. God is in Christ. Reconciling the world to Himself is just true. Our salvation is rooted on Christ, not how we feel. Here's how John the disciple puts it in 1 John 5, 13. The last few verses of 1 John, beginning in verse 13, use the language of knowledge over and over and over and over. I write these things to you. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may feel like you have eternal life, that you may know that you have eternal life. Verse 24, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more. Do this more and more as the day of the Lord draws near. We have to do this together. We have to endure together. We can't do this separately. We can't do this constantly pulling ourselves to pieces. Friends, in my experience, no one who has deliberately separated themselves from the family of God has grown brighter in their spirituality, in their walk with Christ. It's this union with the body of Christ and with what we're able to do when we gather together from everything in these large corporate settings on Sunday morning to worship together to our small groups, to our Bible studies, we endure together. Don't stop meeting together, the writer of Hebrews says. 
And what was true 2,000 years ago is still true today. He says, now I know, you know people whose habit is they've quit spending time with the family of God. The writer says, don't you do it. Don't do it. I need you to encourage each other. More and more as the day of Christ draws near. Even though we don't know when that day is, every day we get closer. It's just the way that it goes. Read an interesting article recently written to pastors about cultural trends and and church attendance and so forth. There's all kinds of interesting things going on that way. Um, But one of the things that he said stuck with me. He said, Given the way our culture is structured, it's very busy, there's a lot of distraction, there's just a lot in this world that's going on. It might be the case that we've come to the point where church attendance has become a spiritual discipline. You're just going to have to give other stuff up in order to follow the priority of church attendance. What are we ready to give up in order to be with the family of God? What are we not ready to give up in order to give up the family of God? Don't neglect meeting together. So let us consider these things, these privileges and these responsibilities walking with Jesus Christ. From that thought, the author goes back to a section of warning. And we haven't seen this in a few chapters, but it's important to the author that we're warned about the neglect of our faith. And so here's what he says, beginning in verse 26. And listen, this language is important. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy. This is a reference to the Old Testament structure. Dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This notion of warning to not neglect or fall away from our faith, it was a lot more common earlier in the book of Hebrews, and we've gone to do some other things as the book has moved on, but now he returns to it. He wants to make sure that we're reminded of how critical and important these things are. The book of Hebrews, the New Testament, it takes sin seriously. It takes the neglect of our faith seriously. It takes the falling away from our faith very seriously. And it turns out, as the author expresses it here and in chapters 5 and 6 and other places, there is a process of, as the word that he uses, deliberate rejection of Christ. And his sacrifice, that leads us to a place where this relationship moves to the point of being severed. And he uses this, this really dramatic language to talk about what this means and how this works. Here's part of what he says in verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? This is the act of deliberately, using his language, rejecting the identity of Jesus as God with us, as Jesus as our Savior, as Jesus as the only way to God. To deliberately reject that is 
to trample on the Son of God. If you've read the book or if you've seen the movie Silence, it's about the persecution of Christians in Japan a couple of centuries ago. And one of the ways in which they would try to get Christians to convert besides the promise of to- or convert away, deconvert, besides the promise of torture on the other side was to bring them into a room with an image of Jesus on the floor. And if you would step on the image of Jesus, you were free from the torture of persecution. So what do you do? And that's a physical working out of the kind of language that the writer says here. He says, don't trample underfoot the Son of God. Don't reject the identity of Jesus as God with us. He says then, and even among those who have profaned the blood of the covenant. We've talked about how important the sacrifice of Jesus is and what it's done for us, but to reject then, to deny the work of Jesus on the cross and the means of our forgiveness. We talked about it like this a couple of weeks ago. The cross of Jesus Christ is where the power and the love of God meet our need. And if we reject the cross of Christ, then what we're left is with our need. That's all that we're left with is is our brokenness and our sin. So if we profane the blood of the covenant, the cross of Christ, he says. Then he uses this really dramatic language. You've outraged the spirit of grace. Remember the privilege that we have been given, access to what the writer calls the throne of grace where we see His grace to help in our time of need. But to reject this, to turn our back on it, he says, is to actually outrage the spirit of grace. That's pretty powerful stuff. Rejecting the work and the witness of the Holy Spirit as the grace of God as it is offered to us. If you sometimes get yourselves into conversations with people who have walked away from the faith or to deny Jesus Christ or who have, uh, you know, they're sort of openly and overtly not Christian, you, you run into typically half a dozen um, arguments against the faith. And one of those half a dozen standard statements that you will hear is that how on earth can a loving God just willy-nilly send a bunch of people to hell because He hates them? We hear that kind of thing a lot. But when we understand the story of Scripture itself, the truth is, in fact, exactly the opposite. God extends grace to people who hate Him. God extends grace to people who are lost in their sins, including me and you. And some people choose to reject that grace And if they persist in their rejection of the love that God shows them, they will receive exactly what they want, and that's eternity without Christ. They've outraged the Spirit of grace, the privilege that God has poured out, provided for all of us as we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And the writer of Hebrews makes sure that we understand that this warning is no small thing. He quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, verse 32, Vengeance is mine, I will repay this powerful language. The Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Guys, God cannot be circumvented. He can't be. 
doesn't matter how much I want to circumvent Him. doesn't matter how much maybe some of us just ignore Him and try to get along without Him. In the end, God will not be circumvented. All of creation will be remade by God. And Scripture tells us that all of humanity will stand before God as their judge, and the only way to stand there is in Jesus Christ. So we need to be, as the writer says, we need to be deliberate about hanging on to our faith. Now, this feels a lot like the stick instead of the carrot, right? It's a warning. It's a warning. And that's okay. Sometimes we need to be warned of these kinds of things. But let me let you in on a little secret. The more you pursue Christ, the more you get to know Jesus Christ, you don't pursue Him more and more out of fear. You pursue Him more and more out of love. You find Him attractive. You find Him beautiful. You find that what you want is even more of Him. You find yourself saying things like the psalmist says, here's what I want. Here is what I seek to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Here's what I want. I'm not just afraid of you, and so I'm going to come trembling before you. I actually want to gaze upon the beauty of God. The the incredible part of this story is that the more we do this, it's not out of fear, it's out of love. We don't want to let Him go. And in addition to that, pursuing Christ and drawing near to Him, it turns out, and here's where the author goes next in this chapter, when we endure hardship for Christ and do it faithfully, it actually strengthens our resolve to stay close to Him and to hang on to Him no matter what. Listen to this glimpse into what was going on inside of the lives of these first readers, these, this first church that read this book. In chapter 10, verse 32, it goes like this, but recall the former days. When after you were enlightened or they came to Christ, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. It happened to you. It happened to the people that you loved. For you had compassion on those in prison, the Christians who were with you who were thrown in prison because of their faith. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one, an enduring possession. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while in the coming one, and, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. It comes from he, uh, excuse me, this Habakkuk chapter two. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We are not among those who shrink back. We will endure, and we will preserve our souls. What an incredible thing for this writer to write these Christians, knowing what they've gone through and how they've gone through it, 
What an incredible thing for you and me to hear. We're not going to be amongst those who fall away. We will be amongst those who endure and preserve their souls. The race says, I want you to remember something. I want you to recall those former days. The book of Hebrews has a lot of these warning passages because the Christians to whom it was written were being pressured to leave their faith. And it wasn't just soft pressure. It wasn't just peer pressure. It wasn't just social media pressure. But the kind of pressure that pulled them out into the public square and mocked them and beat them and threw some of them into prison kind of pressure to leave their faith. To stop believing in Jesus Christ. To stop associating with other Christians. It's the habit of some to no longer come to your gatherings. Don't do that, he says, right? So all those pressures existed, but he reminds them, you endured. You didn't give in, right? The first wave of persecution that they endured was more than met by the first wave of their excitement and commitment. When you were first enlightened, the zeal and the power of what had happened in the transformation and salvation of their souls was stronger than whatever this world brought against them. They had their property taken away from them. Some of them were put into prison because of their faith. But that just did not deter them. Now, I love this. These Christians met persecution with two things. How should we meet persecution? Well, here's one glimpse into it. Here's how they did it. They met persecution with compassion and with joy. With compassion and with joy. A whole group of people around them decided to ostracize, decided to persecute, decided to to legally get people in trouble and throw them into prison and take their stuff away. And how did the Christians respond? Compassion and joy. This is stunning to me. They showed compassion to those put in prison. And it's not just Hebrews here, but it's throughout the New Testament. We read this kind of thing, the compassion they show to each other, the compassion they show to those who are their persecutors. Christians do crazy things when they're persecuted. Other Christians were detained because they believed in Jesus Christ, and the church never forgot them. This kind of level of persecution, it's foreign to us because it's just not a part of our culture and how our culture works, even though there is pressure in our culture to change what we believe about Jesus. But in their culture, it turns out it was fairly common. In other cultures around the world today, this kind of persecution is common. You see, in their world, their religious beliefs were like this with the rest of their lives. Their lives and their religion were intertwined. There was no telling the difference between one and the other. What they believed spiritually and religiously had everything to do with their finances and their business, and it turns out their unions and their marriage and their kids and their sexuality was all like this. Well, what happens when your life is like this and your religion changes? Can you leave this the same? These people didn't. All of it moved. And when an entire life changes, it becomes hard for the rest of the world sometimes to figure out, hard to swallow. Now, this is important for us to hear because how often is it the case that my religious, my spiritual life is like this and the rest of my life is kind of like this? That's not as threatening (laughs) to this world as the Christian whose life is like this, right? Do we know that conversion to Christ, that life 
in Christ. It's an actual change of my entire life. Do we stick out enough to be different, even if it means being different for the sake of Christ? These Christians showed compassion to each other as they suffered underneath that persecution. And then the writer uses this crazy word that we normally would not put inside of this context, and you joyfully accepted the taking away of your possessions, the confiscation of the stuff that you had. They even showed joy when they suffered this persecution, and this isn't the only place. We read this kind of thing a handful of times. And again, guys, I I have to make this caveat from time to time. I'm making a point of this not because I have figured it all out. And you can do anything you want to me, and I'm just going to respond in joy. I'm doing this. I'm saying this because this is such a big deal here, and I need to learn it. Listen to how James puts it in James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, Because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and steadfastness, hope and hope, and on it goes. There's joy in this because our perspective is we're actually being turned into people who are more and more and more like Christ. So the difficulty of what happens pales in comparison to the joy of what's happening in Christ. It's stunning. You see, he's telling us that when we face hardship with confidence, there is actually reason for joy. He even says they knew they had a better possession that belonged to them. Christ was theirs, and Christ cannot be taken away. The kingdom of God was theirs, and no one can take away the kingdom of God. Eternity with Christ was theirs, and no one can take that away. You knew you had a better possession, so you could endure all of that. Going through this reminded me Um, of someone that we talked about late last year, a Chinese pastor by the name of Pastor Wang Yi. Um, Late last year, he, his wife, his kids, and about 100 members of his congregation were scooped up by the the Chinese communist uh, dictators, the, the, the local leaders there in his city, and thrown into prison. Many of them were released later, but I believe Pastor Wang is still actually in prison. He knew this was coming. And so he wrote this, this letter, this manifesto. You really ought to find it and read it. it is, it'll just stun you what he writes. But he writes this letter, and he got it out of the country, and he said, if I get picked up and no one hears from me over a period of time, I need you to just publish this letter. So sure enough, he gets picked up, and this letter gets published. So this happens just last year. This is not 2,000 years ago. This is just last year. And I want to read a couple of sections of what Pastor Wang Yi wrote. He says this, if God decides to use the persecution of this communist regime against the church to help more Chinese people to despair of their futures, to lead them through a wilderness of spiritual disillusionment, and through this, to make them know Jesus, if through this he continues disciplining and building up his church, then I am joyfully willing to submit to God's plans, for his plans are always benevolent and good. That sounds like a New Testament. Sounds like a New Testament pastor to me. He goes on to say this a couple paragraphs later. If I'm in prison for a long or a short period of time, if I can help, get this, if I can help reduce the authorities' fear of my faith and of my Savior, I am very joyfully willing to help them in this way. (laughs) 
But I know that only when I renounce all the wickedness of this persecution against the church and use peaceful means to disobey will I truly be able to help the souls of the authorities and law enforcement. I may actually be able to help my prisoner, my, my warden, learn about Jesus. And if this is what it takes, so be it. I hope God uses me by means of first losing my personal freedom to tell those who have deprived me of my personal freedom that there is an authority higher than their authority and that there is a freedom that they cannot restrain, a freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? This is what God wants me to go through so that more people can come to know Christ, including those who hate me. Let's do it. That's stunning. We read this, and these people teach us something. We read what these Hebrew Christians went through, and they're teaching us something. We listen to the author of Hebrews write this, and we're learning something about our walk with Jesus Christ. Don't forget that he's told us this now three or four different ways in the same passage. Don't throw away your confession in Jesus. Don't throw away your confidence, not in you, but in Jesus and who He is. Our security is not in how well we perform, but in who Jesus is and what He has done. We don't come to God with our own power. We come to God to receive Him, His power, His gifts, His grace. And we as followers of Jesus, we endure. We learn to stay close to Him and hang on until the very end. Don't ever forget that the world does not have anything that it can exchange for Jesus Christ. There's nothing that this world gives that matches the privileges that we have been granted in God because of Jesus Christ. So we who are the church of Jesus Christ, the family of God who has been bought with the blood of the Lamb, Hebrews says, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's pray.